mention uh, something or another about the bereavement ceremony, um, which is now as as was March fourth. Um, it's a time when one is encouraged to come and perhaps bring pictures if you want and put them in the middle of the room. Um, we do it because it's a way to acknowledge and um, mourn those whom we've lost in a Buddhist context. Now, many of us were brought up in other religions, and um, so, of course, there's a ceremony in that religion. But sometimes there feels like there's a bit of a gap that perhaps the practice and the teachings of the Buddha have become quite meaningful for you. And so one wants to do these things in a Buddhist context. So that's the idea. So what we do is we chant together and we go around the room. And if you want to say something about the person or people that you've lost, then you're very, very welcome to do so. Um, It's really beautiful. So I I encourage you to, to contemplate coming if you have the evening free. Um... And I will mention it again because I think I'm giving a a Wednesday night talk the Wednesday before it. So for those of you who are here now, you'll hear the same same message again. But I wanted to remind you now so that you can put it on your calendar if you want. As I was walking over here, my um, quotes fell in the water. So (laughs) I'll do my best. This is something that the Buddha said that I want to begin with. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow, honor and dishonor, come and go like the wind. To be happy, rest like a great tree in the midst of them all. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and sorrow, honor and dishonor, come and go like the wind. To be happy, rest like a great tree in the midst of them all. The Buddha has a teaching called the um, Eight Worldly Winds or Four Worldly Winds, these pairs of things. And as you may have noticed, one side of it sounds really good and we want, and the other side we're not thrilled about or we actively don't want. And I love that they were called, that the Buddha called these the winds, because what we can see is that we're like leaves sometimes, being blown around by pleasure and pain and gain and loss and um, fame and disrepute and um, praise and blame. We find ourselves just easily pushed and pulled by these forces in the world that all of us are subject to. What I'd like to focus on this evening is the pairing of praise and blame. It's kind of handy even just to know the word praise and blame because at times in one's life, just to throw out praise and blame, I mean, especially to someone who knows what you're talking about and a fellow practitioner, um, it can help to hold it a little bit more lightly. Ah, that's just praise and blame instead of completely being caught in wanting praise and, of course, not wanting blame. This is the situation that we find ourselves in as human beings. We find, of course, that we want praise and that we don't want blame, and that this is true for all of us. 
Sometimes, of course, we, we find that we want to blame and we don't want to praise. And so this is a very interesting thing to notice in ourselves as well. The fact is, is that we are all subject to both without any exemptions to that. Um, something that the Buddha said, this is in reference to wise speech, but it's, it's perfect for this. He said, indeed, this is an old pattern, not only one of today. And you have to kind of, you know, today meaning 2,500 years ago today. <laughs> so it's an old pattern at this point. They blame those who remain silent. They blame those who speak too much. They blame those who speak in moderation. There is no one in this world who is not blamed. And sometimes if we feel like we're being blamed a lot or, you know, kind of that, that that's, our, that's our life is, is being blamed, it's very, very helpful to reflect on the fact that all beings are actually subject to this. Sometimes I think about the Dalai Lama who perhaps in this crowd is somebody who we may really deeply admire and um, think everybody should praise or everyone does praise. But then we look a little bit more closely, a little bit more deeply, and we notice that, you know, first of all, there are um, many people who, who think that he should be advocating violence to free Tibet. And, of course, there's the, the case of the Chinese government who would wish he weren't even alive. Talk about blame. And as well, some years ago, there was a sectarian um, difficulty within the Tibetan uh, world where uh, his teaching was in opposition to uh, another group's teaching, another um, big teacher. And so he was actually picketed at times. The Dalai Lama picketed (laughs) because it's an odd idea, because of disagreement about the teaching. The Buddha is actually included in this as well, because we might think, okay, there's one exemption. You know, there's somebody who's, who's an exemption, and it's actually not so. I wanted to read you something that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote. Um, and just to explain, Mara, Mara, because I have to mention Mara in this story, Mara means the personification of everything that's wrong. You know? So kind of the personification of greed, hatred, anger, delusion, um, seduction, lust, you know, everything. Okay, so just hold that in your mind. There is a story about Buddha and Mara. One day the Buddha was in his cave and Ananda, who was the Buddha's assistant, was standing outside near the door. Suddenly Ananda saw Mara coming. He was surprised. He didn't want that and he wished Mara would get lost. But Mara walked straight to Ananda and asked him to announce his visit to the Buddha. Ananda said, Why have you come here? Don't you remember that in olden times you were defeated by the Buddha under the Bodhi tree? Aren't you ashamed to come here? Go away. The Buddha will not see you. You are evil. You are his enemy. When Mara heard this, he began to laugh and laugh. Did you say that your teacher told you that he has enemies? That made Ananda very embarrassed. He knew that his teacher had not said that he has enemies. So Ananda was defeated and had to go in and announce the visit of Mara, hoping that the Buddha would say, go and tell him that I'm not here. Tell him I'm in a meeting. (laughs) (laughs) 
But the Buddha was very excited when he heard that Mara, such a very old friend, had come to visit him. Is that true? Is he really here? The Buddha said, and he went out in person to greet Mara. Ananda was very distressed. The Buddha went right up to Mara, bowed to him, and took his hands in his in the warmest way. The Buddha said, hello, how are you? How have you been? Is everything all right? Mara didn't say anything. So the Buddha brought him into the cave, prepared a seat for him to sit down on, and told Ananda to go and make herb tea for both of them. (laughs) I can make tea for my master 100 times a day, but making tea for Mara is not a joy, Ananda thought to himself. But since this was the order of the Buddha, how could he refuse? So Ananda went to prepare some herb tea for the Buddha and his so-called guest. But while doing this, he tried to listen in on their conversation. The Buddha repeated very warmly, How have you been? How are things with you? Mara said, Things are not going well at all. I am tired of being a Mara. I want to be something else. Ananda became very frightened. Mara said, You know, being a Mara is not a very easy thing to do. If you talk, you have to talk in riddles. If you do anything, you have to be tricky and look evil. I am very tired of all that. But what I cannot bear is my disciples. They are now talking about social justice, peace, equality, liberation, non-duality, non-violence, all of that. I have had enough of it. I think that it would be better if I hand them all over to you. I want to be something else. Ananda began to shudder because he was afraid that the Buddha would decide to take the other role. Mara would become the Buddha, and the Buddha would become Mara. It made him very sad. The Buddha listened attentively, though, and was filled with compassion. Finally, he said in a very quiet voice, Do you think it's fun being a Buddha? You don't know what my disciples have done to me. They put words into my mouth that I never said. They build garish temples and put statues of me on altars. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) To attract bananas and oranges and sweet rice just for themselves. And they package me and make my teaching into an item of commerce. They blame me as well because they are not enlightened. Mara, if you knew what it is really like to be a Buddha, I'm sure you wouldn't want to be one. So, so even the Buddha, you know, had difficulty being the Buddha at times, was blamed. He also had a cousin who was very jealous of him and did all sorts of things, you know, sicked a, a wild elephant on him at the worst of times. And, and this is that, really, really active, actively tried to get rid of him, tried to kill him. And, you know, backbiting and all these kinds of things that the Buddha put up with. So even the Buddha, all beings, all beings that we can think of. And it's worthwhile if we have an image or uh, some idea that someone is not subject to praise and blame or to blame, that we look a little more deeply and see if indeed this is so or not. So, other than being a leaf pushed around by the winds of life, is there another approach? Yes, there is another approach. This approach, of course, is the approach of meditation, of contemplation, of investigating praise and blame more deeply. There's a word, pabachita, and what this word means is one who has gone forth from the world with the intention to extinguish the torments of heart. 
Now, one who has gone forth from the world does not necessarily mean a cave. It could mean a corner of the room. Yeah? And here, we have gone forth from the world to be here together. Our intention is to find freedom from suffering. This is true for all of us in one way or another. So this is what we're doing as practitioners. We are all papachitas. All of us are going forth in some way from being caught in our usual ways by the worldly winds to be able to let go of the torments of heart. And the way we do this, the way we let go, the way we understand and are not simply a leaf being pushed around by the weather, is by observing our reactions instead of being caught in conditions. When we find ourselves being praised, can we be mindful Can we be aware of that experience as it is? Instead of getting so thrilled that we spin a story up around it, a big story, yeah? And then we find ourselves blamed, yeah? By maybe somebody else, maybe the same person, yeah? And then we do the same thing. We see if we can observe how that actually feels. You know, the pain. With with praise, it feels pleasurable, which is called Vedana, the feeling tone of things. So we see if we can be aware of pleasant Vedana when praise is occurring. In other words, that moment of pleasure or that, those moments of pleasure when we are being praised. We see if we can be aware of painful Vedana when blame is occurring. We see if we can be mindful, observant, contemplating pain, the painful feeling that arises when blame is occurring, instead of habitually spinning out a story about it, which is what we do if our hearts are not well-trained. We can't help it. That's what we do. We move with it. We are pushed around like a leaf in the wind. Whereas this approach of contemplation, of investigation, of observing our reactions with calmness and with loving kindness and with compassion allows us to be aware of the pleasure that is there with praise, of the pain that is there with blame, instead of making up story after story after story and then believing our stories and then it getting worse and worse, and then going from one to another, you know, without much peace in between. We can understand that praise and blame, particularly blame in this way I'm speaking about it now, is not so much a personal insult as it is nature, you know, as it is something that happens to everyone. When we experience blame, it's not to scorn the human reaction. When we experience praise, it's not to say we shouldn't experience pleasure or it shouldn't be quite wonderful to be appreciated and for others to be grateful to us or to be seen and acknowledged in wonderful ways. It's a great thing. And it's not to say, ah, we can't let it in, we can't feel it, there's something wrong with it. Or with blame that... uh, 
you know, we should feel thrilled that we're being blamed or, or something absurd like that. You know, it's not to scorn the human reaction that's there. At the same time, it's to not live in reactivity either. It's to try a different approach that allows us to open, be open-hearted with both praise and blame without living in suffering, understanding it more clearly so that it lifts us out of it and so that we can find creative ways of, of being, of living. It's to relate to both praise and blame in a significantly different way. What the significantly different way is, through investigation, we begin to see that it changes, that it comes and goes, that we can't hang on to the most wonderful thing that someone has said to us. I mean, we can, but it really doesn't deeply sustain us. You know, it's wonderful in the moment, and then if we constantly replay it, it kind of, you know, it doesn't stay quite as wonderful. And then it turns into blame in some way. If we can be aware of how praise turns into blame, blame turns into praise, then we can hold it a little bit more lightly instead of being stuck. Ah, we experience praise. Well, that's the way things are permanently. You know, I've hit it. I've done it. I've attained something. And I'm always going to be praised for this wonderful thing that I should be praised for. With blame, you know, ah, I'm a horrible person, terrible person. And this blame is permanent. Now, this is the way things are. I'm always going to be blamed for this. And instead, seeing if perhaps we can notice change, seeing if we can hold things in the light of impermanence and in the light of essential emptiness. In other words, we place so much importance on how other people think of us. And then we think of how we think of others. And oftentimes we don't, when we think of others, it's a little lighter. You know, I mean, we know that it changes. We know that it's not always so cut and dried. And so it's the same thing. You know, if we rely on thinking that the way people think about us is solid and real, then there is a way that we will always be caught by this worldly wind. We can see that so much is out of our control. And we move as yogis and yoginis, as practitioners on this path. We move from the effort to control to the effort to connect. Now, this is really different. The effort to control is saying that this shouldn't be happening, and how can I either get get rid of it, or if we like it, how can I get more of it? You know, so we're moving from that because it never works to the effort to connect in an open-hearted way with what is occurring. Instead of just suffering, our focus is on learning. If we can get interested in anything, there is less suffering and there is more learning that genuinely occurs. Meditation teaches us how to live our own life, not to compare ourselves with others, not to try to imitate, but to live our own life from the inside out. To lean on the approval of others is to be inherently unstable. 
inherently unstable. Um, I don't totally know how to say his name, but Kucinik, Kucinik, Kucinik. What is it? Kucinich. I thought he was great. I just didn't know how to say his name. <laughs> so Kucinich said something very far out. What anyone thinks of me is none of my business. The moment that any of us begins to trade principle for approval, we give up our power. I love this first part. I mean, I like the second two. But this, what anyone thinks of me is none of my business. Yeah? There's a way of moving through the world with great grace if we don't think that it's our business what people think of us. Yeah? We don't hold others' opinions so tightly unless they make sense to us unless they're guides in some way for a deeper level of integrity that we don't know in ourselves yet. You know, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to find. But other than this, you know, to hold the opinions of others in, in, in this way, that it's none of our business, is a very free way to be. Being aware of the conditioned voices of condemnation. And looking at the difference between being acceptable or unacceptable to others versus whether we are cultivating the wholesome or the unwholesome. And another way of talking about the wholesome is that which is happiness producing for ourselves and others. That which, another way of talking about the unwholesome is that which is misery producing for ourselves and others. So what are we cultivating? What are we encouraging within ourselves? The wholesome or the unwholesome, which is a crucial question in life and really is a big part of what it means to be wise. It's a big part of wisdom. So it's a fundamental question. But this question is very different than how do I conform with somebody else's ideas of me? You know, how do I try to make myself more acceptable, feeling oneself to be unacceptable? Looking at the difference between compassion and conformity. Now, what does it mean to really aspire to alleviate suffering in oneself and others? And can we put our life behind this aspiration if it means something to us. Instead of putting our efforts behind the effort to fit in or conform or be the way someone wants us to be. If we are attached to praise, we'll be miserable when we're blamed. And the thing is, is that we can't have one without the other. You know, if we're attached to praise, then blame is going to be a real problem. It's not like we can just um, let go of the blame, you know, like, like work with letting go of our attachment to blame, and then the more praise, the better. You know? It really has to, it would be nice, you know, it would be nice, but it doesn't go that way because it's still attachment. So letting go of attachment to both praise and blame, this is what lightens our burden. This is what alleviates the suffering. (coughs) Wanting only praise and being afraid of being blamed, trying to avoid blame, can influence our actions. I have a very small example of this. When I was first beginning to teach, I was teaching a retreat. And 
as many of you know, on retreats, there are these little clips where uh, you have your name and then practitioners can leave you notes of some sort or another. And, um, you know, the notes vary, let's just say. (laughs) But anyway, usually they're notes, you know, I'm in trouble, I need to see you or something like that. But anyway, um, I got on this one day two notes, one right after another. So it was really odd to get these two notes right after another. The first one, I was teaching with my friend and colleague, Christina. The first note said, Dear uh, Narayan and Christina, would you please talk a little bit more in the hall? You know, meaning talk more during the sittings and um, give more guidance, give more instruction. You know, love, da-da-da-da-da. The second note, dear Narayan and Christina, would you please talk less? You know, like, we're talking too much, and would we please shut up in, in, the, um, in the Dharma Hall, you know? And I have to say, it was just fantastic for me as a new teacher, because I thought, I'll just do whatever I want. <laughs> I was released. I wasn't self-conscious after that. Oh, I have to say more. Oh, I have to say yes. I just do what I want. Because, of course, how can you cooperate with both of those notes? You know? Each person feeling completely reasonable about it. Of course we were talking too much. Everybody else would think that. That's why I need to give them a note. You know, of course they're not talking enough. You know, what about the young yogis? We need more. You know? I'm representing them. So I did feel like it was 100 people on the retreat. So I did feel like it was 50 of one and 50 of the other, <laughs> whether that was true or not. But again, it was just really liberating. The motivation for our actions is what is of most importance. And the context is really important to keep mindful of when we look at the empty nature of praise and blame. In other words, people in this world are praised for hurting others. We know that. We know that. Yeah. You could say that someone like Hitler, very charming from all from all reports, you know, quite nice to certain people and very charming, you know, and was admired by a certain group of people. It was seen in a very wonderful way, was praised. I remember seeing a, um, well, I actually didn't see it, but I heard about a, a video about Mother Teresa where she got a lot of blame for this and that. It was kind of like, you know, Mother Teresa revealed an expose. <laughs> All I can do is roll my eyes. Because whatever you say about her, whatever you say about her, her politics or her stances or her, you know, her belief system. She was obviously someone who tried to let go of self-centeredness, you know, obviously, and yet blamed, and yet blamed because she wasn't conforming to a particular way that somebody had about how she should be. When we want praise, when that is something that we notice in ourselves, and you know, Right here, we might not say, ah, oh, I really need praise or I have to be praised. But when we're praised and we notice that pleasure, you know, that kind of that pleasure that's there, we are leaning forward when we get into it. You know, there's a hunger in it that we might find within ourselves where we want more. We can find ourselves quite addicted to needing more praise. There's this image of hunger 
in Buddhist cosmology. The image is that of a being, a body, of somebody who is, has a very big belly, you know, so needs a lot of food, and at the same time has a very, very tiny mouth, so can't take it in. This is the hungry ghost phenomena. Yeah? And when it comes to praise, we might find ourselves empathizing with the hungry ghost. You know, we might find that in ourselves. And because it's so human, if we look, we will find it. And then that's the time to investigate, to contemplate, to see if we can be aware from moment to moment of the pleasure instead of getting addicted to needing something from outside of us. We can enjoy praise while it's happening. Certainly, we can enjoy it. We can use it to encourage ourselves in profound ways. It's important to be nourished by people that we love and admire and respect. But we can also be aware that it's quite different to be nourished by praise coming with from, from outside of ourselves than it is to know the heart's fulfillment. And as practitioners, we're going for the heart's fulfillment. You know, wonderful when we get both. But it doesn't always happen. And if we are leaning into it, we're always going to be off balance. If we're addicted, we're always going to be dependent on something outside of ourselves. We need to be constantly fed by this pleasure. And so instead, aiming for that which is deeper, for that which really lasts, which is the heart's fulfillment. We also, as well, can practice developing the capacity to withstand blame, to stay steady and still in the midst of blame instead of being completely overwhelmed by it. This is something that we need to practice because it's hard. And since all of us are blamed in some way or another at some point in our life or another, sometimes for things we think that we should be blamed for, other times completely without significance whatsoever, you know, doing the most noblest of things and being, being blamed nonetheless. So it is a practice. It is a practice that we can undertake and gain an inner strength by taking it on, by not averting our eyes when blame comes towards us. Because of the will of unworthiness that tends to be in most beings, particularly in this particular culture that we live in, this particular country, self-judgment enters in very easily. So someone blames us, and it's not just that somebody is blaming us. It connects Now, it connects with this huge degree of self-blame. So it comes together. And then, whether there's any kernel of truth in it whatsoever that we can learn from, that all gets lost. Because it is connecting with this conditioning, this conditioning of unworthiness, this deep well that most of us discover at some point in the silence of practice. So the connecting with this is why the blame hits deeply. And that's why it's not easy to find balance. It is really important, I think, to look at what we kick into when we get blamed. In other words, we can be aware of 
painful sensation, and that's great. Oftentimes, we kick into a habit of some sort or another when we are blamed by others. We kick into the habit of blaming ourselves, of self-judgment, of stories about how we are, how we've been, how we will be. We kick into attack mode, you know, we have to attack to protect ourselves. And then, of course, when we attack, it comes back on us again. You know? And then we attack, and then it comes back on us again. And then it's, it's really a war. Um, another habit is to withdraw. Just cut the person out of our life entirely. Some of us are capable of doing that. Just, you know, person doesn't exist anymore. Or we just really go out of our way to avoid them, unless we absolutely have to see them. We get defensive and we think up a lot of different stories about uh, rationalizing uh, what we did or thinking about how terrible they are or, you know, just, just many, many different stories about what actually happened. We justify, we try to push the blame away, and we second-guess ourselves, you know, even though it may not be well-founded and there really is no truth whatsoever in it. We second-guess ourselves. Maybe there is. You know, maybe there is. And so to be aware of the habit, to be aware of the habits that we engage in when we are blamed is a way to investigate, is a way to learn about our defense mechanisms, is a way to gradually and gently and lovingly let go of the way that we hang on to blame. Yeah. I mean, of course, at times there's something that we can really use when there is blame. And other times it's really a matter of noticing it and letting it go. And practicing letting it go without trying to get rid of it or pushing it away or resisting it because this only makes things worse, only creates more of it. So looking at our habits is a way in to the investigation and thus dissolving of our reaction to blame. Remember, the Buddha experienced blame. So it's not as if whatever degree of freedom we realize in our life, there will not be blame. There will be. The reaction is where the freedom comes in. Can we respond with a greater degree of kindness, of intelligence, of compassion, of wisdom, instead of reacting with all of our old habits? Noticing those habits is crucial because awareness is what transforms. Awareness is what dissolves. If we notice our habits long enough, we can allow those habits to abide to some degree, and then we can notice the painful feeling, the rawness of the painful feeling. And maybe just for a moment, maybe it's extraordinarily painful, And maybe we can just be with it for a moment or two. And then we're off and running. Fine. Not a problem. We come back. There is that commitment to coming back. That commitment to being with things as they are, come what may. And gradually we develop a greater degree of trust and confidence in the power of awareness to dissolve suffering. gradually, as we see it work within our own hearts. If we're not 
simply being pushed around by praise and blame. Once we begin to find our way out of this leaf thing and realize that we don't completely have to be pushed around by other people's opinions and viewpoints, by praise and by blame from others. What is our guide in life? Because maybe that's what we've been always guided by. And maybe in a very clear and strong way, maybe in very subtle ways, we've been trying to cooperate with the agendas of others that we don't believe in ourselves. So what is our new guide? Because we're letting go of one guide the oppression of, of leaning on others to praise us and the oppression of suffering enormously when we're blamed. What can be our new way in life, our new guide for our life? This is where we can reach for something deeper. We can stop relying on our emotions as being worthy guides for ourselves. Because we don't know what to rely upon, Usually we do rely upon our emotions as being more meaningful than they are. So we can observe emotion, we can observe reaction, and then we can allow wisdom and compassion to guide us. We can look, as I said before, at whether happiness-producing states are occurring and being cultivated and being encouraged or not. And then we can notice the results of this in our life. We can notice, is a greater degree of spaciousness occurring? Is a greater degree of ease occurring? Not maybe what we thought and hoped might happen when we began to sit for the very first time, our dreams, our wild imagination about what happiness is, but something real we can see for ourselves. Something real we can touch for ourselves. And so awareness becomes our true guide. We can also, in the Metta Sutra, there's this line, don't do what the wise will reprove. And what this means is finding our own way and using the precepts as guidelines. These very normal, everyday precepts Try not to harm others. Try not to take what doesn't belong to us. Try not to hurt other people through our sexuality. Try to use our sexuality wisely and kindly. Try not to um, uh, not tell the truth. In other words, try to tell the truth. And try not to cloud the mind through um, substances. Try not to misuse intoxicants and drugs. You know, just very ordinary, very simple kinds of things. And yet, utterly profound, utterly profound guides in our lives. In looking at the precepts in this way, it connects with the Metta Sutta. Don't do what the wise will reprove. Not because we shouldn't, not because it's a should, but because it doesn't lead to happiness. That's why. And finding out for ourselves, experimenting, is that true? Not taking it on blind faith. The Buddha didn't suggest anyone take anything on blind faith. Experiment and find out for yourself. Are these guidelines useful and helpful? Do they lead to a greater degree of harmony? Do they lead to less regret in the mind? Experimenting and finding out and then living by them if they do. In real times of difficulty, in real times of 
of crunch in our lives where we we are trying to work with the precepts, but we feel quite confused and quite lost. What I think is so helpful is just to simply remember loving kindness and honesty. Now, those two guides of loving kindness and honesty, when we're in a place where we are utterly confused and we have no idea what is actually going to bring about less difficulty for ourselves and the people around us. You know, we really don't have a strong sense of what is right because perhaps what is right is conflicting with our feelings of happiness. And so it's just not clear. Yeah? And then, I think, throw it all out and remember what is the kind thing to do. You know, what is loving kindness? What is metta? What is going to create less harm in this world? And then I think the second thing is honesty and truthfulness. You know, to see if, if the truthful way, the honest way, is a way that leads us actually, even if it feels painful, to less confusion in our life. I've been speaking about um, being blamed and being praised. But how about blaming and praising others? Because we do a lot of that as well. We blame others and hopefully we praise others as well. When we blame others, when we're in the habit of blaming others, we empower the person that we're blaming and we disempower ourselves. It doesn't feel like that in the moment. Sometimes it feels like the only way we can actually get any degree of power is to blame others inwardly, is to think about them in a blaming kind of way. But actually, the opposite is true, as we sometimes see, which is that when we blame, we are actually being dependent on that other person changing in the way we need them to change so that we will be happy. So our happiness is actually dependent on the other person changing. You know, it it sometimes happens, and it's a miracle, and it's a wonderful thing. (laughs) But boy, it usually doesn't. It usually doesn't. Sometimes when it does, we can get this kind of thrill and think, ah, maybe it's going to happen again. And it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, I mean, it's rare. Once in a while, of course, with certain conditions coming together. But most of the time, it doesn't work that way. Yeah? And so we hand our life over to that other person. You know? We don't work with or cultivate our own heart happiness And we're thinking only if that other person changes or cooperates or wakes up or stops doing this this terrible thing, will I be able to be happy? So our happiness is not only, does not only have to do with our own inner conditions and inner obstructions and obstacles, it has to do with another person's inner obstacles and obstructions that is just about impossible to get in and shift and change and you know, do something too so, so it will change. And so being very aware of this, it really is a setup. In praising others, wonderful, wonderful thing, of course. You know, so generous-hearted to appreciate, to see others. 
Yeah. We want to be seen. We want to be visible. We want to be acknowledged when we're doing something great, and even when we're not, and even when we're just being ordinary, we want to be be seen and, and appreciated. Um, I went through a time where I knew a lot of four-year-olds, and I'm not sure whether it's this exact age or, or what, but I went through this interesting situation where... Um, the first four-year-old I happened to have contact with looked a little bit bigger than four. And so I said to him, you're four? How could you be four? You look like five. And he was so excited. <laughs> it was just, I had completely made his day. You know, he, he kept coming back to me and just standing there and beaming, you know, and just, just feeling quite full, you know, not, not like full of himself, but just full. Just, here I am, I'm five. She thinks I'm five. <laughs> and so the next time I saw a four-year-old who kind of looked like a normal four-year-old, I said, you're four? No? <laughs> couldn't you be five? Yeah, I wasn't going to lie, but couldn't you be five? And um, and the same thing happened, this incredible phenomena, you know? And then I had a couple more in line, and I did the same thing with all of them. <laughs> so I'm not sure if it's the four or five kind of thing, but it was just so funny and adorable and wonderful to see the glow there. You know, you, you could see that it was like giving a plant water, you know? That, that, um, that it was a positive thing, of course, developmentally children need to be praised, they need to be appreciated. And it would be wonderful as adults if we got it too, you know, because of course, oftentimes we didn't receive it when we were small. And I think even if we did receive it, we still want more. But um, usually, many times not receiving it, and so of course wanting it. But then we get into that addictive kind of thing. Then we get into the leaning into you know? But for us, you know, praising, what a wonderful thing to take on, the practice of generosity, the practice of, of seeing others, their, their, the beautiful parts of them, and noticing and acknowledging and being grateful for the smallest of things that we receive from others. It's so incredibly encouraging. Shantideva, in the Bodhisattva Way of Life, said, Praise all who speak the truth and say, your words are excellent. And when you notice others acting well, encourage them in terms of warm approval. You know, it's very, very beautiful, very, very wonderful way to, um, to be in life. And also noticing when it's actually not praise, when it's flattery, or when we're praising so that we can get something in return whatever that something may be, seeing if we can notice whether it's true generosity or whether there are strings attached in some way. And this is the subtlety of praising. Bringing mindfulness to this area of praise and blame, bringing mindfulness to being praised or the desire to be praised, bringing mindfulness to being blamed or the fear or the misery of being blamed. Being, bringing mindfulness to praising others, seeing if we can notice when we're holding back, when we're kind of being stingy, when we're being generous, the enjoyment of offering appreciation and gratitude, 
noticing the subtleties of when it's actually not appreciation and gratitude, but an effort to get something from that other person. Being aware of this kind of subtlety. Being mindful of blaming others and noticing how we lose ourselves when we blame others, as valid as it may be. Bringing mindfulness, this is the work of those of us who have gone forth into the, out of the world, gone forth from the world in order to let go of the torments of heart. This is our work, bringing mindfulness to the inner conditioning, the inner conditioning of blaming oneself versus seeing things clearly. The inner conditioning that allows us not to appreciate our own strengths, that allows us to only see that which is negative or difficult or limited within us. But seeing if we can be mindful of the ways we limit ourselves from appreciating that which is strong within us, that which is noble or developed or already cultivated within us. Seeing if we can be aware and appreciate and be grateful for that which is already developed. Being aware of our reactivity, of the habit of praise and blame, versus mindfulness, which is relating wisely to the conditions. Mindfulness means, a definition of mindfulness is to stop, to pause. Mindfulness offers a sense of spaciousness. It offers a sense of perspective. Mindfulness allows us to investigate. If there isn't presentness, if we're not pausing or stopping or being aware of what is, we can't take that next step of investigating. And investigating is what allows us to let go. So letting go is not possible if we're not mindful, if we're not present. Being aware, being mindful, which is what allows us to keep our hearts open without clinging. This allows us the freedom of non-dependence on conditions. In this, there is the cultivation of contentment that can't be taken away. Cannot be taken away. Cannot. Let's sit for a moment. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have openness of heart. May all beings rest in awareness.
Okay. So, um, please feel free to stay for some questions or feel very free to leave. Thank you very much. Almost. Okay, so what's up? Anyone who wants to start? Yeah. Um, intentions? Say that again? Intentions? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good intentions. I'm sure that the people who devised the Inquisition have good intentions. Devised? Devised the Inquisition. Yeah, 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 right. And good intentions. Exactly. Yep, may, well, maybe. <laughs> But let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say yes. Um, the whole thing with intention is that it changes from moment to moment. And so when we're carrying through a certain course of action and we think, um, my intention is good, um, we're in big trouble. Because it may have started off good, and there might be with anything one moment where um, one is deluded, certainly, but may see it with some degree of good intention. I mean, we can't assume that everybody always acts with good intention or thinks they have good intention, but from your question, there is that assumption that um, that, that sometimes people do very bad things and there's good intention, right? Or they think there's good intention. Okay, okay, right. I want to make the point that sometimes people don't think they have good intention. Right, okay, okay. So for people who do think they have good intentions, um, it may have begun with a moment where there was a good intention there, where it was coming from metta or compassion or renunciation, which are basically the three wise intentions. But um, there wasn't mindfulness, and um, that intention changed, and it could have changed the next moment, you know, and then a whole course of action being put into place. Oftentimes, um, something that I notice is that after a huge course of action has been put into place or somebody has done something really terrible, the person says, well, how did that happen? I had a good intention. Yeah? I mean, you know, it's not that it, that it didn't come from that. But the problem is that it changes. And so we can't assume. We have to be mindful from moment to moment of our intentions. We can't assume that just because it began with a good intention that it didn't change. Yeah. And this is really, really important. This is a very, very important point because so often when we do something, we're resting upon that good intention. We're saying, well, you know, I had a good intention. Why was somebody um, disturbed with me? You know, why were they unhappy? Why did they flip out? My intention was really good. 
Well, you know, sometimes it changes. I mean, always it changes. It's just that in, in any mind, there are going to be um, wholesome intentions happening and unwholesome intentions happening. And we want to not act on the unwholesome ones. But if we don't see them, if we don't see that it's unwholesome, then if we're saying, oh, here's an unwholesome one, but basically it's wholesome, so it doesn't really matter, then um, we're, we're lost in delusion. You know? Whereas if we can be more humble you know, and, and notice that from moment to moment it's changing and that we need to let the unwholesome intentions arise and pass away as quickly as possible. I mean, you don't want to shove them away, but just notice and let them not die a natural death and that we want to act on, um, encourage those intentions that involve loving kindness, that involve generosity, that involve alleviating suffering, that involve seeing things clearly. You heard a guy on NPR tonight from Iraq who truly believes that he's bringing something good to the Iraqi people. He's a soldier. He's got good intentions. He may kill people. Right. It's a tough thing to see. I mean, I think it's pie in the sky for me to think that just because I'm sitting and meditating and I want to have good intentions and I, want to, I don't want to hurt people, that I'm not going to hurt people. Exactly. You should not think that way because that would be a real error. You know, that would be, there would be pride in that and there would be resting on one's laurels and you would be complacent. I mean, I think for all of us, Humility is the way to go. Not to think that we are not all capable. If we were in particular situations, you know, I mean, we happen sometimes, not for all of us, but for some of us here, we happen to be in a situation where we're not defending our family. We're not, you know, and, and again, not to say that this isn't true for all of us here, but certainly um, there is a huge degree of, of racism and poverty in this culture, so I don't want to make that as a blatant statement. But um, for, for, for many of us, there is, we're not in a position where there is this um, kill or be killed kind of situation, or um, we steal because we're trying to get food for our kids, or wh- whatever it might be. You know? So I think it, it just, it's, it's that constant, it's confidence, you know, and it's confidence that one is trying to, is attempting to take a different direction. Um, but it's certainly being utterly um, humble in the midst of it. And I think as we practice, it's great because we discover our rage. You know, we discover, um, we can't pretend that we're not capable anymore. You know, we know it because we're intimate with ourselves. So we're intimate not just with that which seems wonderful and great and, you know, harmless, but we're also intimate with the ways that we could harm. And that is the saving grace. You know, that can help when we're in a crunch. Mm. Mm. And I guess I would also suggest that the person who was speaking, I didn't hear the person at NPR, but I would also suggest that a policeman does good things as well as as, as has to kill people. And the, the soldiers in Iraq, some of them are doing very good things. You know, it's, it's not, it's mixed. It's mixed, yeah. Yeah. In the lessons around praise and blame, um, we have such an opportunity to be aware of when we're addicted to our own praise. Is there something 
when we're praising others, ways that we can help. Uh, I'm a teacher. Ah. Uh, I teach drawing. Kids, and, like, children. Um, no, college freshmen. So some people will call it. There are ways to give praise that I can see them becoming addicted to that. I can see that tiny mouth and that need. Ah. And I'm wondering if there are ways to feed the, the need without feeding the addiction. Right, right. schools of thought in teaching about that. that Say that again. There are schools of thought uh. in teaching about how to do that in the um, academic world. Right, right. But yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think it's a really good question because I think, you know, in 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 teaching meditation, it's it's the same thing. Um, you know, uh, there's there's something similar in that, and I think that um, something or the, the the guide perhaps is um, always always. Um, Seeing for yourself, not that they can necessarily see it, but trying to take that leap to see the person's Buddha nature. You know? In other words, seeing that they're already complete. Yeah, that they think they need praise. Yeah, but it's actually not true. Yeah. So if you hold them in that way, it's not really what you say or not say or, or this or that, and I'm sure you can be skillful or not skillful um, because sometimes to hold back is very, very strengthening for the person, you know, because then they really have to rely on their own resources, you know. But you have to be, it's, it's a matter of, of moving with things and not having a cut-and-dried approach, you know, but being willing to stay fluid. But the, the wisdom and the loving-kindness, you can see that person as already, you know, doesn't need praise, you know, already complete and whole within themselves. And if you see beings in that way, um, that is a big help. Because uh, uh, it's a different way that you're being with them. You're not being with them as you have something to give them, or I am helping you, or I am saving you. You know, kiss of death, I am saving you. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you're, you're just, you're with them in it which is very, very, very different way to um, connect with others. Yeah, good, good, good question. Yeah. I was interested in the comment that you made about uh, when we blame others, we disempower ourselves yeah. and empower others. I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Is, yep. is, it, is it just <laughs> good. in the interpersonal sense that you mean? Because, you know, in business, in work, in politics, in the world, I mean, it would be very sheepish just to... Um, you know, not to See, it's it's really um, it it is not trying to be blind to unwise action. You know, and, and even in every example that you just mentioned, including in interpersonally, you know, it's not saying um, you didn't do it or it didn't really happen or it wasn't that bad. You know, it's not trying to pretend that things aren't the way they are, but it's also trying to respond to that instead of suffering because of it, instead of getting caught in it oneself, and usually being quite paralyzed. When we're lost in blaming, oftentimes we don't act, or we don't know what to do, or we find ourselves just stewing in something, 
rather than doing something that actually might be creative. And by doing something, you know, could be sending loving kindness. I'm not, I'm not spelling out what the doing is. Um, it's, it's using one's mind differently than in the usual habitual conditioned way. So it's for the sake of freedom. And if you're pretending that something bad didn't really happen, that's, that's not, that doesn't make any sense at all from the perspective of practice because we always want to see things clearly. And we don't want to be rose-colored glasses or, oh, it wasn't that bad or, no, it was terrible, horrible, you know, extremely bad thing to do. And we're aware of the ways that our minds take that up and run with it instead of noticing it and then trying to respond from a different perspective, trying to respond with wisdom instead of reactivity. Mm. So the, the, the way that we um, disempower ourselves is by using our brain cells in an unintelligent way, you know, instead of using our brain cells in an intelligent way. Exactly, exactly, right, right. So, you know, the whole, the person has moved in with us and we don't even want to see them. Or, you know, the whole world has moved in with us and then we're not able to contribute to peace. We're just adding to the suffering because blame on some level is, is aversion. You know? So we hit an aversive situation and then what do we do? We add more aversion to it instead of seeing if there's another element we can add to it. You know, which again does not mean um, pretending it's not happening or trying to think it's not as bad as it is. I want to really emphasize that because it's important. Is that, is that clarifying? Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the issue of self blame. Mm-hmm. Because I, I find that um, I don't need blame of others to generate my own. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're self self Yes. 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 Right. 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 Yes. Um, I. You know. Just to say that I don't know that I have ever known a practitioner um, in the last twenty years who has not um, begun. I don't know how long you've been practicing. Can you? Can you say like months, years, months? I mean weeks. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. But I have never known anyone who has not begun their practice with a great deal of self-blame. It's amazing. And um, sometimes people don't don't notice it until a couple of years have passed. (laughs) You know, they think, oh, I'm the rare one that has escaped, I'm fine, and then it hits them, you know, and then this whole huge, because it's very, very conditioned in, in in the Western world. You know, it's not the same in other areas of this world, although, yeah, which is very important and, and helpful sometimes to notice because then you can see, ah, it could be different. You know, I'm very much conditioned by the culture that I live in. And you can also feel like, well, you know, the next person, person next to me is probably doing it too, you know, to them, to, to themselves. Yeah. So you can feel like you're, you're aligned, like you have company. <laughs> We're all blaming ourselves, you know, <laughs> instead of um, just you blaming yourself. And so that can 
bring about a little bit more spaciousness too. But I do think that um, loving kindness practice, metta meditation, done deliberately, um, even you know, even just are you familiar with the metta at all? Okay, even just um, ten minutes before you go to sleep every night really has an effect on the mind. You know, even if you don't, because you say you practice erratically, so, but you have to go to sleep. So, even if you just resolve to do it for 10 minutes um, before you fall asleep at night, it will have... No, I mean repeating the phrases. May I um, be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be free from suffering. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be free from suffering. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Continuing with those phrases. You know, mind moves away, you come back to the phrases. Mind moves away, you come back to the phrases. You know, it has it has an effect on the mind, on the heart. It has been proven. <laughs> I mean, it's it actually has been proven, but it's been proven even in you know this situation. Mm. Yeah. So that's what I would encourage you to do because it's like taking vitamins. You have to counteract it in some way, and loving kindness is an antidote to aversion. And so loving kindness to yourself is an antidote to self-aversion. Well, there's a million different phrases, but um, if you liked, I, I'm, I change my phrases from time to time in terms of offering them. So um, what I've been using for the last few years is, may I have ease of mind, may I have comfort of heart, may I live with love and compassion. So you can take those on if you want. Or may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free from suffering. Happy sometimes is going overboard. So. <laughs> ah, too cheerful. Yeah. Um, but you can change the phrases. The idea is to have three or four phrases. Don't make them too personal, though. You know, let them be a little bit more like generic, like what you would want for others. Okay, that kind of, th- of thing. Yeah, but I would I would really take it on and just commit to doing it for the next two years, and then reassess. Yeah, but definitely ten minutes if you can. Yeah, okay. And I also actually would encourage um, a couple of minutes of sending it to anybody else. You know, to um, somebody that you love or to the world at large. You know, something like that because that also helps one to see well there is love there. You know, as much as I hate myself, there's actually love there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's helpful in terms of, of knowing um, things a little bit more clearly, too, and knowing yourself more. Okay? And you can actually warm up on the other person and then go to yourself. <laughs> it's okay. They won't feel used. <laughs> they'll, they'll be delighted. <laughs> okay? Who else? Yes? Yeah. In my work life, mm-hmm. um, there's a premium put on um, moving quickly through and getting on to the next thing. So if I'm blamed, which happens with regularity for this, that, or the other thing, um, there's there's an expectation that you're sort of going to take it on the chin and move through it in a stalwart fashion. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I'm working with now is, is experiencing the rawness of the feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Uh huh. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to go into a meeting within a half an hour with this person who had blamed me for 
Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can can you go to the bathroom? Yeah. <laughs> it's handy. It's handy. It is. Yes, yes. Right, right, right. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And coming back with red face and you know, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, it's funny because a lot of the teachings from 2,500 years ago, they're directly transferable. It's like the mind was the same then as it is now. It's very funny. Um, But other things, you really see that in the Buddhist time, people were not running from one thing to another. They weren't trying to get through one thing to, you know, because of the technology. Technology was different. Families were more together, the same village, the same community. Um, times were, the conditions were different. And so one has to apply the teaching differently. Same teaching, but you have to apply it differently. And, you know, rule number one is don't lose your job, you know, if you need it. If you don't, then another story. But um, if you need it, it's important to hold it together. On the other hand, um, when we undertake practice, we do... um, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't. It's not safe. You know? I mean, it's ultimately the safest thing in the whole entire world because what we think is safe is not safe. But in another way of looking at it, we are opening to the unknown. And the unknown is always the unknown. And it's different. There, there are, you know, there's a, a, a path, certainly, that we're on. And there are great similarities. 
And in my position, I get to see how similar those similarities are. I mean, it's kind of amazing. And at the same time, everybody's different. You know, everybody's going to open in their own way. And so for one person, you know, openness might be really easy. And so to kind of, you know, work with um, kind of balance might be really, really important. For another person, what has meant balance has been being stoic and not knowing what's really happening within, you know, a non-intimacy or needing to present oneself in particular ways or whatever. And then that begins to break down. That's the not safe part, is that the structures begin to break down. The ways that we've thought about ourselves begin to break down. And we are different in the world. something, Something I've noticed that's a little bit interesting is that Sometimes when people are very time-oriented, they start losing things. You know? And for other people, of whom I was one, who were not time-oriented, they get better about time, you know, about being on time and these kinds of things. So it's interesting. It's like you get balance. You're not doing it deliberately. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You know, it's like it's like always in 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 um, paths these days. I notice everybody wants a guarantee, and um, you know this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen in this many years. And um, I remember someone coming over to a Tuesday drop-in, and she said, "This was just I just you know it's just too much time to put in. I have I have to you know to do this and that. I can't put all this time in. Thirty minutes of sitting is um, you know all this time." And, you know, I mean, this is the path. It's not like you can um, negotiate with it. You know, you can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, it's, it's a path of awareness, and you don't know what's going to happen. And I think, you know, sometimes we're comfortable with that. Other times we're really uncomfortable with that. Um, something keeps us going until we know for ourselves that it is absolutely the only alternative we have, you know, in terms of a well-used life. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Right. Of what? Yes. Yes. Definitely. Definitely. Which tells me you're doing great. <laughs> Who else? Anybody? Yeah. Um, What you were talking about earlier, getting trapped into the victim blame spiral, that that has been a place where I I have have had a lot of facility getting trapped there. I I can get trapped there very much by her over long periods. And, you know, every time I step out of it, I'm like, well, I don't know, that's over. I know better now. That's not going to happen again. Blaming others? Or blaming yourself? Yes, both. Both. Okay, okay. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, being being where I feel somebody is hurting me, blaming me for that, being very trapped and paralyzed in that situation, and also blaming myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, feeling myself right there, victim. Right, right, right. It's, you know, again, it's, it's this, it's the air we breathe. Somebody's, somebody's to blame. (laughs) <laughs> what, what I wanted to ask though is, is there a way to get out of that? Or I mean, 
Again, I, I think that, um, that the metta is, is the best way. I think that the loving-kindness practice, because it's directly designed for exactly this difficulty. You know, so because of that, um, it's, it's, it's probably the best way. Um, the other thing you can do, because I have to say, in my early years of practice when there was a great deal of self-judgment, um, metta was not popular. Um, there would be a little bit of metta, maybe an hour at the end of a of a like a seven day or nine day retreat, and um, I don't know. I kind of I kind of related to it then as being like gushy or sentimental or kind of get me out of here. Of course, the word happy was used. May may you be happy or may I be happy. So maybe it was that. But in any case, um, there wasn't that option of loving kindness practice when I began. And um, it hadn't made its way over here yet in the way that it has now from Asia. Um, And so um, the practice was really just to be mindful of the self-judgment, you know, and and of what I was talking about before, Vedana, of pain, the painful feeling, you know, and being, and that, that of course, is, is, you know, it's a path of awareness, um, some people don't like the metta, which is fine. You don't have to. You don't have to love loving kindness. It'll happen anyway if you keep practicing. But um, to to be aware, to see if you can recognize judgment when it's occurring of self or others, to see if you can accept it without thinking it's a terrible thing that it's happening, without um, justifying it, you know, without condoning it, but just simply, is it okay that it's happening right now? Well, it better be because it is. You know, so accepting it and then investigating it, noticing that it's impermanent, that it changes, that, you know, there's a way that the heart is caught. And then when it's free, it's free. You know, and then in those times when you think, oh, it's over, don't believe that. You know, don't believe that thought of it's over, it's not going to happen again, because you're setting yourself up, you're coming to a conclusion. And um, I don't think one ever wants to think that because it's just an idea. It's more, is it possible to be with this um, with gr- a greater degree of wisdom and compassion, you know, if it happens again, or when it happens again, or whatever. You know, because there's self, there's ego. You know, I'm, I am done with this. And it doesn't leave open the possibility of phenomena arising and passing that has nothing to do with you. Okay? All right. All right, so maybe we'll call it a night. Um, let's um, sit just for a moment, if you, if you will. When we practice the Dharma, the clouds of sorrow disappear, and the sun of joy and wisdom shines brightly in the clear skies of our minds. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings live in love and in compassion.